Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Silmarillion Film Project. This is session number 26 of season 6. And tonight, we descend into hell. So that ought to be a good time for everybody, I think. Um, it is time to do episode 10, uh, when, uh, which is, of course, we'll begin with Baron and Luthien approaching Angband, all the way down to the Senta Angband, the theft of the Silmaril, uh, the uh, dismemberment of Baron, and then escape by Eagle. Uh, that is the scope of our episode, uh, the, well, episode 10, that we'll be discussing during our episode here tonight. Um, we have a wonderful uh, script uh, that was written for this. I was very, uh, I was very, I was telling uh, Nick before the show, Marie, uh, that, that I was I was particularly impressed at the prose quality of the stage directions, which was really unusually high in this episode. I was really I'm like, who wrote this? Like, why would, this is this is different. It's, anyway, it was it was uh, it was it was fun. It was fun. It was clearly a lot of um, uh, a lot of visual imagination being invested in like the way the scene was being described and, and, and unfolded there. It was pretty cool. I'm joined uh, uh, by Nick and Marie. See, I'm not good at this intro thing. I don't normally do it. Nick and Marie, uh, our head writers, are, are, are with me as usual. Dave couldn't make it, which is why I'm fumbling my way through the introduction. Um, before we get going, just a, a few announcements. We've got some moot updates here this week. So um, our next moot coming up is Tax Moot on April 15th. On tax day, so it's tax moot officially, and we do actually—it's official now. We officially did have somebody who submitted a proposal to give a talk on Aragorn's tax policy in celebration of tax day. So that's that's happening. I'm very excited about that. Actually, the theme is uh, the theme is language. We're going to be doing all kinds of fun linguistic stuff. Um, Marie, uh, Chad, and Matt Cannon are going to do a Tengwar lesson uh, that day in book course. It, both. Very good. Very good. Frequent <laughs> attendees at TaxMoot. So we're going to be doing a Tengwar lesson. Uh, we're going to be doing some conlang stuff. It's going to be really, really neat. Lots of fascinating uh, language stuff going on at TaxMoot on the 15th. So that's down in San Antonio on April 15th. May 20th, we'll be in Toronto for our first ever Canadian moot. Uh, our first maple moot in Toronto on May 20th. And then another first up to the Pacific Northwest at last to Portland, Oregon uh, on September 23rd, the day after Bilbo and Frodo's birthday for Cascade Moot, then back to Iowa, uh, one of our uh, one of our old-time favorite spots, Middle Moot, on October 14th, and then back here to Derry, New Hampshire, on October 23rd. We're going to be back at Studio Lab in Derry for New England Moot again this year. So, um, that is... Oh, and then, of course, Myth Moot is coming up in June, last weekend of June, June 22nd to 25th, back in Leesburg, Virginia, at the National Conference Center. Good to be back at our traditional venue this year. And tomorrow, the 31st of March, is the end both of early bird registration and of our call for proposals uh, for uh, Myth Moot. So definitely want to encourage people to uh, jump on both of those things. And of course, Sim Film News casting nominations are open. We're getting ready to talk about casting. 
for season six. Um, so do go to the message boards to nominate your choices for season six roles. So, um, we're, so we're not voting on the final casting yet, but we're still taking casting nominations. So if there are people, uh, so you can, you can nominate your favorite, uh, voice of Huan. you can, um, you know, there's, there, there, there are several others. As we were talking about in the casting episode, there's sort of fewer premium roles available in this season than has been the case in a little while, but there are still some pretty good ones. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. the nominations are off to a good start. We've had about 20 nominees um, put Great. forward in, so far. Um, 19 had... for Huan? Or... <laughs> no, the the most is actually for Gorgle the Butcher, strangely Gorgle enough. the Butcher, okay, yeah. We're yeah. good on nominees for him, but um, <laughs> we only have two so far for Baron. So if anyone had someone in mind for Baron ah. and they hadn't quite tossed a name in the ring yet it would be great to to go ahead and do that the highest profile of our uh of our nominations um i think people often but there are several voices of huan in there as well that's good yeah that's good but there's room for more so we we accept i I may or may not be in the midst of preparing to drop a uh, nomination into the huan category actually very good yeah yeah Uh a familiar voice in fact but a surprise one for now (laughs) right Right. Um, but anyway, okay, so that's what's – so make, make sure to uh, put in your casting nominations, and then we will move on to – because then, of course, we'll open voting uh, to vote for the uh, the final ones, and then we'll go through the votes and uh, veto people. So that'll be good. Um, <laughs> we don't veto that many people, but occasionally we'll veto somebody. Anyway, um, Okay, so let's get back to the episode. Ah, the Karen Fonstad map. Okay, here we go. Um, one of the things that I've always found peculiar about this map is that Thangarodrim, like, is so huge. It's like, were, was each mountain actually, like, 100 miles across? <laughs> like yeah. I mean, it's, on the one hand, it's very evocative how, like, you know, it just kind of is is sort of sitting there like this, uh, you know, like malevolent like ant's nest or hornet's nest, you know, in the middle of the of the continent there. Um, but it does it does always raise questions of scale when I when I look at it. Um, it would make uh, Angelicon the Black moon size not, <laughs> yeah, exactly. not a big moon but <laughs> a, right right yeah he would have to be about the size of the death star in order to yes. crush uh, uh one of those but whoop, whoa hang on accidentally hitting the wrong thing okay um all right so yes we are heading up towards uh towards angband there um all right so descent we are descending into hell um we've got two plots that we're going back and forth among. I say among because there's two, but there's really kind of more than two. In fact, um, it was one of the things that I um, was sort of curious about, but I needed a little help on. In fact, because the scenes are not numbered sequentially, and I was getting confused. I was I was one like because it was like, you know, my we had eight and then seven C and stuff. And I was like, I wasn't quite following what was supposed to be going on there. So I have, I have, I have questions, but anyway, the stuff with the enslaved elf. So kind of say first, gorgeous, brilliant. We haven't seen Dario in what two years. It's been a long time since we've seen Dario. 
it was last season. Was it last season? Was last season the Daryl yeah. season? The captive season? Yeah. Daryl has appeared in the past two seasons. Uh, so right. she was made a captive back in season four. And then in season five, she's present when um, Rogren right, and when, company when, when escape. escapes. Yeah, right, mm-hmm. right, right. Okay, that's right. That's right. But it was season four was the primary Daryl Edelwals uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Um, so anyway... I it was this was one of those things that um reading the script I was like that makes so much sense. I I, I would not have thought of it. Like I was I, I was not thinking about our captive elves uh in Angvan that we've already uh, uh met and of course the introduction of the new one, Guolin, whom we need to remember whom we need to remember is there and maybe get, if not attached to, at least familiar with, um, so that when he gets publicly dismembered, we'll care about that. Um, because, of course, uh, in the Silmarillion, we don't meet him until he gets publicly dismembered. So this is, again, one of the fun elements, right, of uh, being able to do this, is that we can we can give a little bit more backstory. Anyway, point is, I brilliant idea uh, to include that. And one of the one of the effects of it was to me, the most striking thing about this episode was within the frame of our storytelling here, the, what felt like almost extreme dilation of the part of the story that Tolkien treats most briefly, in fact, skips over entirely, right? They meet Karkaroth at the front gate. They enter Angband. And pretty soon they arrive down where Morgoth is, right? I mean, like, the whole descent, he says almost nothing about their descent through Angband. Um, and we spend actually more than 60% of the script on the descent, basically. I mean, or at least we're more than 60% of the way through the script before they get to the throne room, uh, substantially, maybe like 70%. Um, so the whole... The build-up and the um, uh, and then and, and I kind of like that proportion. By the way, I mean it. It seemed to fit the the sort of like uh, slow, stealthy descent followed by frantic retreat at the end. Um, and so that everything, not only with Baron and Luth, not only in the A plot but in the B plot as well, um, was um, uh, was like happening much more quickly. Right. Uh, you know, things were things were, uh, you know, coming to a head much more swiftly um, on the way on the latter part than on the first part seemed to seem to really fit that. Uh, anyway, so uh, I thought that um, I thought that was really interesting. I mean, seeing the descent of Baron and Luthien through the um, like through the lens of the uh, of this reminder of the elves in. Angband, I thought was really a, a really cool idea. Um, so, do you guys want to talk about? Do you, are there things you guys would want to talk about, like with, about that generally before we move to some of the specific choices in working out that plot, or, or so you, know, you want to speak a little more broadly about kind of what you guys were thinking or hoping to achieve with that, or? 
Well, the first thing I should say is that okay. the script writer in this case is Katrin, yes. who I don't think yes. we have publicly named on the podcast. Yet. Yes, this is Katrin. <laughs> so, uh, step yes. one. And well, unfortunately, Katrin has been one of our artists. No, she, she was yes. on to talk about art last season, wasn't she? Correct, correct. Yeah. Yeah, um, but unfortunately, she much. was not available for this uh, session. Yeah. It's not exactly at a friendly time and no, for it's Europeans. No, a little hard at plus six. And so down. it didn't yeah. didn't work with her schedule. Um, yeah. So unfortunately, she can't be here. But uh, hopefully, she says that she hopes that her work speaks for itself. She had other <laughs> engagements at 4 a.m. Yeah, yeah. Mostly sleeping, yes. But <laughs> Exactly, right. Yeah, it's perfectly respectable engagement to have at 4 a.m. Um, uh, yeah, okay. No, I agree. Yeah, and, 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 and really, I... I, I Catherine, great work. I thought this was really fun. This was a really, really cool script. Um, I really, I really enjoyed this. Um, um, as, as I said, like the the stage directions were just delicious. Like I was, I was just kind of like reveling in the. I mean, I have to admit, sometimes I kind of skim the stage directions a bit. You know, I'm like, I, I'm following the dialogue and I'm like, I'm, 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 I, you know, glance at them to make sure I know what's happening, right? But I'm going through and I'm following the action and the character and development and everything that's going on. But like this time I was like, oh no, man, like I, I am, I am so here for this. Like I was, <laughs> I was, I was riveted by the stage directions. Yeah. That, that must make the, uh, the reading of my episodes quite fast because that's because my uh, dialogue tends to be quite terse. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Well, it varies. You know, I mean, obviously sometimes I have to read the stage directions a little bit more carefully, but, uh, um, but yeah, no, it was, it was, uh, I was, I was engrossed by Catherine's stage directions. I thought that was a lot Indeed. of fun. Anyway, yes. as I say, really, really well written um, uh, episode and definitely yes. encourage people uh, yeah. to uh, follow the breadcrumbs there. And um uh, read it for themselves. It is posted mm -hmm. there uh, on our forums. Indeed. Um, yeah. Um, I would, in fact, like to talk about the kind of uh, general uh, shift of focus mm -hmm. uh, that we've created here. Because essentially what would have happened had we not done so is we would have had to somehow fill a half an hour, 40 minutes of TV with the throne room scene, which <laughs> right. like could have been a thing that we could have done. It could have been. Right. Um, and the, the, you know, there are interesting By the things time Luthien started her third set, it would have really, uh, <laughs> right. you would have had to have some kind of like, um, like kind of trippy dream within a dream within a dream kind of thing going yeah. on to kind yeah. of, ameliorate no, I mean, the uh and this Margot is one of the so like, monologue a lot more than he does that kind <laughs> right, of thing right yeah. um i mean so like fascinating little adaptation moment right this moment mm -hmm. in the silmarillion um this is such a huge moment right i mean this right. this the 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 face to face with Morgoth, not only confronting him face to face and his identification of her and stripping her of her disguise and her defiance of him um and then, you know, her, like, Luthien successfully casting Morgoth into sleep. Like, it's a huge moment. This is an enormous, epic moment. Um, and so it's one of those things which, you know, when we were talking about the plot outline, it was like a no-brainer. It was like, well, obviously, we're going to need a whole episode to do, you know, the descent into Angband. 
but actually, you're right. It's one of those things that when you actually look at it, when you actually think about depicting it, it's 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 quick. There's not much that happens. You know, there are very few uh, kinds of events. Um, it was the ep- the episode felt for that reason. It felt luxurious. You know, like the amount of time that we were able to even time like that that really beautiful moment when. Luthien herself was feeling overwhelmed by the suffering of the elves, right? And, like, like that we get to pause on the way down to the throne room for, like, Baron and Luthien to have a moment, right? Was, was, I mean, it, it felt like a luxury, you know? And, and I, I, can't, I mean, I think of how many times we have been pushed to, like, squeeze everything in uh, to these episodes. And, um, and I was, I was, uh, I mean, at the time... It's not that I was questioning. It's not that I was saying, "Gosh, do we really need this?" But I was like, "Man, are we going to pay for this? Like this this feels this feels self indulgent, you know, to 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 you know pause for moments like this in the middle." Um, but uh, but there was time. I mean, it, it 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 you know, I didn't I didn't think that we were we were losing much. So no, it was just it was interesting how how brief the actual events were and how much more time we had when trying to do something like, you know, an hour of production out of this. Yeah. And and that comes as a, a benefit of the bottle episode mm-hmm. idea, like by restricting ourselves to only the happenings of yeah. the Angban. Yeah. It gave us a lot of time to really kind of dive into, because we created plot lines there in Angban. Right, yes. rather yes. than just follow Varen and Luthien down the, you know, because that would have just been kind of a tour, right? Yeah. Of Angband, there's yeah. no tension there, other than the fact that it's scary and bad. Yeah, right. We we did discuss a lot about how to balance concepts of horror with concepts of despair, like what level were we depicting? Where did we want things to be? gory and in your face and terrible or did we want to somehow find a way to convey you know abandoned hope all you who enter here kind of right. scenario right. and it they're different things and we were hoping that by taking a moment to spend time with characters we would get a little bit more than just wow this is gory and scary looking nobody would let me do like like bloody mycelium which you know would have been just fantastic, I think. Like, but nobody wanted me to do anything like that. <laughs> so that was just an awesome sentence, if taken independently. I, yeah. I just, yeah, yeah, um, um, yep. Matthias yeah. would know what I was talking about. He, he knows. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he would. I'm um, sure he would. Evan said that he uh, he really enjoyed how the prisoner plot line plays to the release from bondage theme without like smacking you in the face. Absolutely. No, that was one of my first reactions. I mean, when I was, when I realized that, you know, we were, you know, there with Duriel at the beginning, um, I was like, Oh yeah, that's perfect. That's perfect. Um, especially since, and I thought it was especially interesting as I, um, had a shrewd suspicion that we were not, in fact, going to set all the prisoners free in this episode. Um, so, uh, you know, which, I mean, there would be maybe a certain expectation of that since we've been, you know, 
we've been doing a whole bunch of liberations as we go through and 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 uh so there might be a kind of expectation that once again you know yet another you know jailbreak number five or whatever it is in this season right would be happening here um and it doesn't happen in fact it's almost the opposite right it's almost the reverse where the prisoners instead of Baron Luthien setting free the prisoners the prisoners allow Baron Luthien to escape right and um and so it was it was not only a fascinating integration of the uh release from bondage thing mm-hmm. but i thought a really really fa- i mean uh, a really not quite a reversal but but a really interesting contemplation of it which is especially important given that we're now building up towards the great escape um, with the Mandos stuff later on. Right. The The challenges of depicting Ang Band in this episode are just step one of the challenges of depicting Mandos. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, obviously Tolkien doesn't spend a lot of time in either Ang Band or Mandos right. in his stories right. to leave it somewhat mysterious deliberately so and we've spent at least some time in angband before now so it wasn't all from scratch or anything we've seen the villain plot lines we've seen our prisoner plot lines we've not spent time in mendes so that's yeah exactly (laughs) exactly no we've um in a sense kind of glimpsed it from afar now in episode one right uh Mm -hmm. at least at least with Mm -hmm. sort of you know and there's landscape there right right and we've seen Morgoth and Chains in Angband and we've in sorry in Mandos and we've seen um Feanor's mother Muriel there yeah again as a glimpse but yeah we have not spent time there right right exactly um yeah um anyway like I said uh, Gulen certainly was like um I I was assuming we weren't escaping. <laughs> I, I knew one elf who is certainly not going to be escaping in this episode. Right. Um, well, yeah. uh, you had pegged Diriel as the elf who would never escape Angband when we introduced her storyline yeah. originally. Yeah. And yeah. I know that at the time I had been thinking, okay, so she'll just be a prisoner for the entire duration of the first age. She may or may not survive the the destruction of Angband right. yeah, the at the end. Whatever, yeah. But yeah, I was definitely not anticipating um, ending her story in season six. <laughs> and right. so we got here, then it's like, oh yeah, okay, that, that works. <laughs> I liked it. I liked it. I mean, first of all, <clears throat> um, poor Dario, like, uh, you know, I, yeah, but, um, but no, if, If we do this carefully, and Evan, I, I hear your point uh, in the comments there that the prisoners sacrifice themselves and Baron and Luthien don't lose a look of sleep over it wedding time. I hear that. I hear that. But, but actually, I think that um, I don't know how much active reflection on the sacrifice of the prisoners there's going to be. But the question of... All the way along, freedom and imprisonment, right, has always had this third term looming in the middle, which is death, right? 
Um, we've definitely seen that with Finrod, right? It, it's brought in very prominently with Finrod's choice of death, right? Um, Finrod does not escape, um, but nor is he, you know, kept helpless in prison. He chooses a third option, which leads to his death. Um, and uh, so what is that? What does that mean? You know, what does that suggest? What does that show? And um, that, I, I mean, I, I, I thought Deriel's ending was like a kind of happy ending. Like it was, you know, I, I, I was satisfied by Deriel's end. Um, and I, I think it's important not only for us, but perhaps even, I mean, and we don't want to belabor it and stuff, but perhaps even for Baron and Luthien to be asking the question about, um, you know, is, <laughs> to what extent is survival an essential element of escape? <laughs> Basically, you know, like, is that, are those two things the same thing? Um uh, how is death related to like, you know, in the whole imprisonment, you know, in like if you've got enslavement on the one hand and freedom on the other hand, where exactly does death fall in? How is death related to that is a question. I mean, that is it is going to become the central question with Verita Luthien by the end. Um, so yeah. it's very right to bring that up. Uh, and again, even possibly for them to be thinking about it, you know, um, in you know the next in, in episode eleven or something. Yeah, I mean in episode eleven, obviously they're going to have to deal with the aftermath of um, Baron losing a hand. Yeah. So yeah, that is a a rather permanent situation. He's he's yep. not growing it back. Yep. And um, so th this has some also permanent consequences, and I think that the question of what does Estelle look like in the context of a place like Angband or a place yes. like Mandos. Yes. Like you, you have to really look hard <laughs> to find mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. So Daryl's been looking. Yes. She's, she's been trying to keep going for something. She's at the point of thinking, well, I guess I'll know it when I see it, but yeah. what if there's nothing that's ever going to happen? That's going to make any of this worth it. Yeah. So so yeah. she's she's struggling to to keep going but also struggling to find any reason or hope in her yeah. situation or any way forward that would be on her own terms. Right. Right. No, absolutely. I I have questions about the prisoners storylines like I, I but yeah. I I mean but I I just want I want to like note at the beginning that I a lot of my questions are related to the fact that there's like really complicated and like deep and abstract things that are being raised here um and uh and really difficult things and it's not easy to do so i have some like questions and in places some confusions but i just want to make sure from the very start that like i i really love the you know i love the idea i love a lot of the execution i think it's it's um it's just, in some ways, it felt to me, I don't know what it actually is in, like, word count or whatever, but I actually felt that the B-plot took more time. I felt like I spent, was spending more time with the prisoners. It almost, they seemed almost the point of view characters of this mm -hmm. episode, 
Um, I don't know if that was just an illusion on my part because it was because I wasn't expecting it. It was so much more than I was expecting, but it, it seemed almost as if um, they were the primary viewpoint in this episode. One of the reasons that it might feel that way is um, is the fact that most of Baron and Luthien's scenes are spent kind of like observing what's happening versus the scenes where with the prisoners they're doing things and saying things and there's a, a philosophical debate yeah. that's taking place yeah. there yeah. so yeah as far as on paper i would say it definitely would feel that way yeah yeah um and yeah, i don't necessarily without... yeah i don't i don't necessarily know that it would have felt that way on screen but on paper it sure did yeah and without a a third plot to be cutting away to Mm-hmm. Um, and with the two plots overlapping a lot, yeah. the the blending it together to figure out which one's the A plot and which one's the B plot, it's meant to get lost in the shuffle. <laughs> By the time you get to Act Three, it's like, what is even happening? What scene right. are we in? I don't know. We're going back and forth. Well, that's so, well, certainly that that effect succeeded. <laughs> I I was I did not know what scene I was in. So yeah, that was good. <laughs> Sorry for the confusion, but no, yes, no, it was, hey, that's fine. The, the goal was to interweave everything at yeah. that point. Yeah. No, my, my only confusion about the numbering, because normally I don't, I don't even pay real close attention to the numbering. Um, but when I, when I, it just at one point, I happened to notice that I was going backwards in numbering. And so I was like, does this mean that this is not actually the order in which they're going to be presented in? Or No. What it meant was that the, I forget if it was seven or eight, but one of them is the prisoner storyline and one of them is the Baron and Luthien storyline. Mm-hmm. So all and the they, eights. 8A, 8B, and 8C are Baron and Luthien, say, and 7A, 7B, and 7C are the prisoners. So the order they were on the page is the order they go in, but it was just showing where to intercut them. And I I presume that Katrin was playing with where to cut them and preserved the the numbering for her her own sake. (laughs) Yeah, I was, no, I was, uh, I was, I was, yeah. I was assuming that like the sequence of the document was uh, the sequence yes. that she scenes would go in, but yes, correct. Um, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I was, uh, I wasn't a hundred percent sure. Okay. Let us, um, I want to talk about the B plot first. Let's mm-hmm. talk about the captives first and then we'll come back uh, to okay. Barrett and Lucy. That's fair. Um, okay. So we start off with the new prisoners and the old prisoners. Right. Um, so Guilin is captured and his folks are captured in the, uh, uh, at the Fens of Serech, right? Um, and that was in the Dagor Bragalux. Actually, I was having chronology questions, too, at various points. It, um, it's been about six, seven years since the battle. Right. So are they just... Because, I mean, that would have been before Fingolfin's death that Guilin would have mm-hmm. been taken, Right. So mm-hmm. um, anyway, this is this is what I was a little confused by. So is he just so he's new to this particular neighborhood? Where's Gulen been? Right. So um, you can't just take your captive soldiers and throw them in the mine and be like, OK, go to work now because right. they're not going <laughs> to. Right. So there has to be a transition from captive to broken down prisoner to 
now so you're a worker. Like prisoner boot camp first to get broken before they get thrown into the right. Mines. So they have passed through whatever Angband was doing to them for the last seven years, and now they're being put on a work detail, but it's for the first time, and so they're a little resistant to the idea of just going along with it. Okay. So that's why it seems new because this aspect of their imprisonment is what's new. Right. Um, So it's like the, um, it's like when Niggle gets to go forth into gentle treatment, except the opposite. Right. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. I'm tracking. And this also explains why, although he's been in Angband for years, um, Gulen had no idea about the death of Fingolfin because he was like in solitary torture confinement at that point. Right. Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Th- that was just to demonstrate the delay in news and that these people are cut off from the outside world. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. All right. So that was one little confusion. Cause I was, when, when Gulen gets thrown in and treated as a newbie at first, I was like, is this a flashback? Are we like, I, I didn't know if we were doing a chronological shift. So, um, uh, and I don't know. I'm not sure to what extent that would create confusion, like in an actual production, you know, because especially since they would have been taken a long time ago in screen terms, right? I mean, right. Like we, it was the end we of met Gulen, uh, right? Didn't we met him, right? Didn't didn't, didn't we meet him? Did, we got introduced to him uh, before he was taken, so mm. we we will have seen him captured back latter half of season five. The last two episodes of season five were the yeah. Diver Bragalock and the right. capture at the Fens of Sarek should have been in episode 13, if I'm recalling correctly. Right. Um, so we saw him captured, you know, almost a whole season ago now. Um, and what happens at the end of that episode, the death of Fingolfin Gulen is unaware of, right? Like it, anyway. So, yes, it felt like a flashback, um, and I thought that we might be doing that. That we might be kind of moving towards, like, uh, meanwhile in the prisons. Here's because it's been a while, mm. right? I mean, mm. we, we, the last mm. time we saw Dirio and the other prisoners was back when Rogren escaped, which was well mm-hmm. earlier than that yes. in season yes. five. So, um, anyway, yeah. So that I, I, I don't know how big of a deal this is, but but perhaps um, uh, yeah. some kind of exposition to clarify a little mm. bit might might alleviate the confusion. Yeah, if if it's just if there's some kind of language, I also think that um, I was thinking about this today. The there is an attempt made to separate the prisoners by having the newer prisoners still have food from their supplies mm-hmm. which in retrospect seems unlikely even if even if they were fresh out of being captured like there's no way that they still have that stuff on them um but uh, certainly after you know their time in the re-education pits right, right? Yeah, it's right. meant to be lembus and so yeah. crumbs of lembus left i yeah I, yeah. yeah, I don't. I it's still. It's. I realize it, it's. That attempts was are being made to differentiate. Did, yeah, yeah. It was another thing that made their cap 
captivity seemed very seemed very recent. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, um, yeah, that might be. But thinking about um, thinking about the food thing. I can understand the impulse uh, to differentiate them, not only just to sort of show that they're different, but the way that the food discussion was focused was it was a it was a way of making uh, kind of visible the idea that Dario and the others were like totally bought into the Agban system, right? And um, whereas... Gulen and the others were not only like keeping up their spirits in a different sense, which would be tied to the like Limbus crumbs, basically, mm. but um, uh, but also like it was a form of resistance, right? Like we 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 have not yet stooped to to this, and even and 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 I kind of liked the concept of the food thing because it was about for Dario, it, it was about survival. Right, like you don't know what you need to survive, and like they need food to survive. Um, so, anyway, I I, I did feel um, I, I saw the logistical problems with it, but I did feel that the concept of you know you are just like um, you know subsisting on Angban food, and we have not yet sunk to that level was a a nice, like a visceral, so to speak, and and visual way of, um, uh, you know, kind of demonstrating that gap between them. Um, I don't think it'll work, but I like the concept there. Um, right, it works fine when Mary refuses to touch meat thrown to right. him by an orc, right? Because yes. yes, it's a very short amount of time there. He's not desperate for food, right? It's harder to pull off if you've been captive right. for seven years. Yeah, right. Um, do we want to? Tolkien seems to suggest that Calaquendi can go without food for really quite some time, like mm. Mythros, possibly for years. Uh, so, um, are we interested <laughs> in going there at all? You know, um, there's really. No way in which Mithras's captivity matches a living thing's need for sustenance on any level. Right. So either Morgoth kept him alive, or elves are magic. Like right, right. It, there's not really an in between of well, you can last for a year without food if you're a Calaquendi or you know something like because right. he was up there right. for more than a year. Yeah. So, yeah. but he does obviously use it in several points with. Um, uh, what is it? Uh, Tour and Veronway of Tours. Like, well, you might not be close to death, but I am. <laughs> right. Kind of a comment. Right. Of, right. You might Certainly, not need food. Uh, not, yeah, showing a differential between like no, the Noldor and humans is is sort of easier to do in that. Yeah, um, yeah. But so if if you want to say that they've been on a hunger fast for like seven years, that would be a pretty extreme way of saying we're not buying into this. Yeah, I, yeah. I. It'd be hard. yeah. It'd be hard. I yeah. mean, it, it would be, um, it seems to me it would be very difficult to do that without straining the, um, um, 
secondary belief of the audience. Even people who know, like, the whole yeah. Silmarillion tradition, you know, would be like, well, of course, there are those passages that do suggest that they can go for years without food. And mm. yet, seeing there's a difference between Tolkien saying that in one sentence and actually seeing it on screen and be like, well, six and a half years without food and I still feel fine. Like, that's that's kind of hard, you know. Um, so, yes, yeah. I don't think that's necessarily a great solution. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, there could be certain things that they accept from the Food and Ang band and certain things that they don't. And so right. what Deriel's crew is surviving on is they're eating everything that they're given. And maybe Gulen's group is a lot pickier mm-hmm. and is like picking out certain things that they find mildly palatable and are discarding the rest. Yeah, right. you, could, you could do something like that where they're still being very snobby about the I'm too good to eat this and look at you right. stooping mm. to that level. Like you could still maintain that differential and, and keep the bit with the, the mushrooms of like, well, if the you have mushrooms thing, to it, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. like the, the poor little Zindel. Like <laughs> I'm, I'm trapped in egg bed, but here I found mushrooms. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which, you know, I, yeah, I, that, the, the mushroom thing was interesting. Actually. I, I, I did like that. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, um, so I, uh, price gouging, I wanted to say your name so that you can hear it again. I was just tempted to do the same thing. (laughs) I saw that. So I had a hard time reading your name at first because on my screen, your name is coming up purple on a navy blue background. So I couldn't really make it out, but I see it now. I see it now. Um, uh, anyway, there you are. There you are. Glad you're catching up. That's a lot of fun. Um, um, okay. So, so um, yeah. Okay. So the food thing. I, I, I think that yeah, there could be other ways to to. It, it does seem like a, a sensible kind of way to talk about really the the to to sort of crystallize the core issue of like. Are you going to comply or are you still, you know, to what extent are you still resisting? Um, now, let's step back from that a little bit. Tell me what. Tell me about Deriel's frame of mind. Like, where is Deriel at the beginning of this episode? Where is, like, where exactly right. is she in her process? She's never had the. I mean, I remember we, she was the one on whom the, the spell of bottomless dread was not placed, right? Correct. She saw it happen. That's... She knew there was no resistance. She was trying to lead the escape, and then it got undone by the whammy, and um, and she right. gave up. But she was still helping Rogren to escape. So, like, there, you know, she wasn't, like, a collaborator, Exactly. So, like, we're we're kind of taking her story much lower now. So, yeah. with the spell of bottomless dread, she sees what happens to Edelas and is like, "Oh no, um, yeah. we we won't be having any of that. I'll do anything yeah. to avoid that." Right. And so she makes a compromise of all serve Engband if that doesn't happen. Right. And then, so the next one. We see her, it's with Rogren's escape, and she's playing this game of like, well, as long as I don't actively help you escape, 
Right. You know, as long as I can maintain some kind of deniability, I'm still. Doing yeah. So like, there's a veneer of service yeah. to Ang Band, but yeah. in my heart of hearts, I'm still with the elves and helping the elves. So she feels very good about what she's doing in that episode, right. and she's playing a game with yeah. finding the balance. By now, things have changed. Right. She's been there a long time, and it's not a game. Um. She's being treated as a collaborator by the army of Angband. So right. Uh, right. she's making decisions and choices that result in elves being treated badly or killed. And she's losing sight of what the goal of all this is. Because mm -hmm. if it's comply, comply, comply so that you retain your free will... Well, you've now just spent your free will to never have a free choice to make, but at least I have free will. It's like, but you can't use it. Right. <laughs> so right. it's like, how does that make you any different from a willing participant in everything that Angband is doing? Right. right. Are you one of them? Is yeah. what she's struggling with here. Not personally, she doesn't see herself that way, but she knows that's how Golan sees her. And she knows there's some truth to the accusation. So she's. Yeah. Feeling very bad about where she right. is. Right. Yeah. So um, uh, price gouging. Yeah. Just for context there, the Guilin is an Argothron captive, but he's the one who is used to lure um, the army out. So uh, Gwyndor, who is going to be the one who is in the Turin story, the escapee who helps Turin um, and brings him back to Nargothrond, is the brother of this guy. And Gwyndor is going to get captured. When, yeah. We've renamed Gelmir to Gulen because there's two Gelmirs, and we saved the name Gelmir for the um, Turin story with Arminus. Yeah, the other one. Yeah. 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 So, um, yep. Gulen in Tolkien's text is the father of the Gwyndor father and Gelmir. Gwyndor and Gelmir, yeah. So, we've exactly. just swapped the name out. Exactly. But yeah. To so confuse it's... everyone, apparently. <laughs> right. Um, it's uh, It's in that. It's in that direction. Oh, yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, Price Gouging is saying that she hears this joke about how slow we goes, but apparently she never, I, never, never actually believed us uh, that we go this slowly. But, yeah, no, we we really do. We really do. Uh, three years later, we're only in the Baron <laughs> season. I, um, yeah, by no fault of anybody around here has that. No. Taken huh? longer than it was originally planned. <laughs> Please. Um, yeah. Please. We've been we've been working on season six for a little over a year now. Yes. And we're now to the point of presenting a script for episode ten. So we're, we're doing we're, quite well. We're we're, we're making progress we're cruising. here. Cruising. Absolutely cruising. Um, um okay, so yeah, so so with Duriel, so the the challenging thing, right? One of the thing, one of the issues that I had when Gulen comes in and starts railing against Dirio, I wasn't sure where my sympathies were supposed to lie. Now, to some extent, I'm sure that's deliberate, right? Um, but when Gulen was calling her a collaborator, I, I guess I didn't see at first that Dirio had changed. Cause when last we saw Dirio, she was helping Rogan to escape. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when <clears throat> my impression for the first, like 20% of this episode 
at least, was that the drama here is that Guolin is the one who is being naive, right? Um, that that he was at fault. For, like, so when he was arguing with, with Duriel, I thought that he was the one who was at fault for being unsympathetic uh, to her position, especially since there was the whole Feanorian thing, right? So, I mean, he recognized her as a Feanorian, and so that would seem to also then add another layer of prejudice against her in his mind. So I thought at first that Gulen was being unfair, basically, in saying that she had, um, you know, she had given in and was just being a collaborator. And, and you know, my own, my emotional impulse as I was reading the beginning of the, of the episode was to be like, no, Gulen, you don't understand. Like, you know, she's doing everything that she can, but there's only, you know, like you don't understand the, power of Morgoth and you don't understand you know like it's easy for you who's just arrived to be like why aren't you resisting why haven't you tried to escape and like dude she has like she's been here since season four you know um and we've anyway so that was my first like I didn't I didn't have from the start a clear picture of Duriel's continued uh kind of degradation to have gotten to that point. I mean, I could see in like that, the crisis point at the middle when she seems to be contemplating suicide, perhaps at the edge of the Gulf. I wasn't sure if she was actually considering suicide or not, but in any case, she was having a low moment there privately when she then sees the, when she then sees the light of the Silmarils, right. And, and like has that, has her little turning point there. Um, but still, like, up until that point, it wasn't, um, I don't know, even when we had the scene where she was, like, being forced by the orc captain to, like, pick out people to be punished, um, even then, I was like, that was, that was when I, like, so at first I thought I, I was on it. Right. I'm like, okay, Dario, like, my sympathies are with Dario. Guilin, like, just doesn't understand, right? And is not being fair to her. And then as the, um, as it continued in that scene, I was less confident. I'm like, well, that's not a good look, right? But, I, but at the same time, like, I still found it very moving, right? Again, I, cause I was, I was picturing her as still, like, basically being compelled. Uh, with, but, but anyway, I was like, man, it's horrible to be put into that position. Right. Um, which it is, I mean, it's a really cruel thing to be, you know, like we're gonna, we're gonna, you know, whatever. But, um, anyway, I, I, but in retrospect, I feel like my sympathies at the, in the first like third of the episode were probably misplaced or like not quite aligned properly. And that might be my fault, but. No, no. I, I think we wanted it to be not obvious which one of them was going to win this argument or how it was going to get resolved. Because this is not a situation where someone's being an idiot and there's a clear right answer of what to do. There's not really a good way to survive Angband. There just is no great Right. choice available right. yeah so no matter what you do there's going to be some regrets and some second thoughts and some uh what did i just 
do there no matter what and which is why her death at the end felt like the happy ending like exactly that was, and and yeah. brings us back to the slavery freedom death mm -hmm. triad that i was talking right. about before exactly and and so this is some you know terribly depressing stuff to think about yes. and all yes. the real life examples that uh, relate to this i don't want to talk about right now but <laughs> the um general idea of finding a way through the story you you have to have moments of having sympathy for one or the other and thinking oh no no you've got it all wrong and so when yeah when she's being a collaborator you're like oh no dear don't do it what was she supposed to do? And then, you know, Gulen, oh, you, you just don't know yet. And that's the point is he doesn't. He's never yeah. seen the spell yeah. of bottomless dread. And it's yeah. not until they start talking like, oh, well, you heard what happened to Adolos, right? Like, right. It, it's like, oh, right, right. There's a whole other thing that could happen here. And so Diriel's like, well, at least I have my own mind. I might not have anything else, but at least I have my own mind. For now. Yeah. For now. And that's the thing is, how long is that going to last? So Right, right. It's... Yeah, the whole thing. It's terrible. So I, I, I don't think you're mistaken to have chosen a side at the beginning and be like, oh, I think I see this working. And then it like right. was, oh, well, I don't right. know. <laughs> right. Because we, yeah, know, I... we know Daryl better than we know Gwilin. Right. Exactly. Exactly. One other... Here was another thing that I think was directing my sympathies. The loyalty of the others in her group. Right. Um the fact that they all seem to care for her and view her as their leader still is what I think in some way almost concealed from me that she had ceased significantly to resist. Like that she had changed uh, from being the... Um, like when she helped Rogren escape, you know. Mm -hmm. um, well, I just... I don't know... I... How I felt like there's but... yeah, but I felt like there should be a cost to living yeah. like this, and yeah. like she made a choice, and she's been living with that choice, and she was content with it to to an extent. But like, this is an ordeal they're all going through. <laughs> there's some trauma involved, you know. That yeah. doesn't that doesn't not leave its mark. And so even when they first meet her, it's like. Oh wait, you're that elf that we haven't seen since whenever. And she's like, Yeah, that was a long time ago. Right. Right. It's she's yeah. changed and her appearance has changed. She doesn't look the same as she right. did. Right. You know. Yes. Five hundred years ago. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. Um Yeah. Um Yeah. I I think it's it it needs it does need to be unclear what yeah. you're supposed to be thinking, and Gwilin does have it wrong yeah. because like they have accomplished some really shockingly good things, even in their um, in their servitude, uh, but. As you say, it, there's a cost. And eventually, it starts to wear on uh, on everybody there. Yeah, yeah. Um, were was uh, Gulen's eyes put out at the end? Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's what I. That's what I. I thought I remembered. Um, 
Um, okay. So, one of the things... I wonder if... She doesn't necessarily have to say it straight out, right? But that... Marie, the thing that you articulated, it doesn't get articulated in words, right? But that, like, she saved herself from the spell of bottomless dread. She has preserved her free will. And yet in doing so, she's completely given up her free will, right? Um, Something like a more explicit realization of that. Um, Even some kind of a realization that, like, she has, like, she has had the spell of bottomless dread put on her after all, you know, like it's in a sense to Mm. show what she's turning for, like what her turn at the end, um, because in the end what happens, she uses her free will to rebel, you know, to do something. Mm. And, um, I, my fear is that, because there was that reference to Ethelos, but it was pretty indirect. I mean, it was it was very gentle. Like it was it was mm. it required a lot of independent remembering on my part to to put it together. There, right. Well, that was part of why you are a great test reader for this, because <laughs> obviously in the script discussion we're putting all this together and be like, okay, so this is where the prisoners were and this is what they did. Right. But right. as you said, you weren't expecting this storyline because <laughs> no. this is the part of the episode that we made up and is not right. actually in Tolkien's story at all. Right. So, so yeah, I was wondering how it would be perceived if you didn't know where things were going and, and everything. So there's probably a few things that could be made more explicit and yeah. connect the dots. I feel there's it, always that I, balance I, I, of you don't want to yeah, bash the audience over the head, spell it out. Right. but you don't want them to get lost. And you're as you say, it's been two seasons since we've seen the spell of bottomless dread. Maybe we need a more uh, stark reminder of what it yeah. entails. Yeah. Yeah. Even, Just even... some people who are, who have, who are working but they've been placed under the spell of Bottomless Tread. Just oh, that like that the camera the camera passes over them. Right? And but they're... we see them. Yeah. Right. 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 We don't have to like it, it, it can it can um come after the scene where Dariel is saying, like, you, you dude, you don't know it could get way worse than this. Trust right. me. Right. Mm-hmm. What if it's um what if it's Gulen and his folks? who come across this other elf, right? You know, like, so that basically they have a, like, we thought, you know, they were, you know, compliant slaves of Morgoth. Look at this poor person who seems uh, to have lost his, you know, his mind completely. Or it can be part of Baron and Luthien's journey that they encounter mm. zombies, <laughs> essentially, right. on their way down. Yeah. Like, right. So yeah, we can we can work it in in multiple places and do different things with it. But yeah, I, I think that Gulen is much more willing to work with Daryl and accept Daryl once he understands better what the context is. Mm-hmm. Even if he doesn't agree with her, he at least sees where she's coming from. Right. Mm. Right. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, we would definitely need reminding about the spell of bottomless dread if we're going to see zombies, because that will be, if we're going to see 
bottomless dread zone. We're going to see dread zombies. Um, we're going to need to be reminded more explicitly of that. The dread pirate zombies. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yes, but yeah, I do think I do think that a few a few more references to it sprinkled throughout would help mm. with the with the themes there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So, in a similar vein, then, um, I'm feeling clear. Well, no, hang on a second. I'm not done with Daryl. So, tell me that moment when I wasn't sure whether she was thinking of committing suicide or not. The turn, the turning point, of course, comes when she sees the Silmaril. And she, of course, she's a fan orient. She recognizes the Silmaril, obviously, right? right? And that's going, that has a, an impact on her. But I wasn't, I wasn't a hundred percent sure of exactly what that effect was, right? Like mm-hmm. I, 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 I was, I was having a hard time piecing it out. Like um, that, she would revive in some way, like that her spirit would revive on seeing the white of Silmaril. Um, but like, what exactly was it that she was deciding? Exactly what? I wasn't sure that I had a clear sense of like what, what, what exactly was the choice she was making. Right. So mm-hmm. if the whole idea of her resistance has been comply, comply, comply. Right. So that when the time comes, I can make the free will choice and do something that I choose. Right. What is she waiting for? Like, you know, the part where she was helping Rogren escape, it was very obvious what she was doing. She was making choices that fit there. But now she has very few opportunities to do much of anything. So right. what choice is she waiting for? When she sees the Silmarils, she's like, that's it. <laughs> it's literally the yeah. one thing <laughs> that right. this whole journey to Middle-earth was all about. Right. That's what I'm supposed to do is feel that from Morgoth. I'm a hundred percent behind whatever plot gets the Silmaril out the door and more got right. of a Silmaril. So when she sees it, it's that aha moment of this, this is what, what I was waiting for and nothing else matters now. Nothing else is important. As long as I do that one thing, it doesn't matter what the consequences are because right. I will have made my choice and accomplished the thing I chose to accomplish. Right. So but it's like she has one chance to do the free will thing. She yes. knows that she's not going to survive. Right. Uh, being Which rebellious again. Thing. Thing. Right. That's the important thing. Right? Yeah. Because the, essentially what she's been doing is choosing to save her life. Mm-hmm. Over, like, you know, like, I mean, like the thing with them um, being forced to pick out the prisoners by the orc yeah. captain. Right. It's like if you if you don't do this they'll kill you right mm-hmm. so you're choosing to prioritize your own life over um uh over the uh, uh <laughs> it reminds me of a conversation i had with somebody a long time ago I was talking about like um shotgun marriages and somebody said like you know being being in a, you know uh, like being in a shotgun marriage is not getting married of your own free will and i was like yes it is you're exercising your you totally are exercising your free will 
you could you could choose to you die. die. <laughs> you know, like, well, the, that's a choice. That's, 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 it's, it's a choice, but it's maybe not a free. Choice. <laughs> well, that's why the, the, when the Declaration says that that, um, that governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed, it, you could go a step further, and the, you know, governments derive their powers from the consent of the governed. It's just that sometimes that consent is at the point of a bayonet <laughs> right exactly exactly that but but anyway the point is again like dario has been she's been she has been exerting her free will but essentially the only thing she's been exerting her free will to do is to survive to, to spare right. her own life to right? keep going or to keep her group going i mean it's not yes. necessarily been completely not, self-centered not, but not it has been yeah but yeah. it has been survival oriented of stay alive today so that tomorrow you can still make a choice and do a thing Exactly, exactly. And so what that moment then felt like, the Silmaril moment, is that this is the thing she's, like, she is going to choose. This is the thing that matters more than her, right? I will happily die in order to accomplish this other thing. And, And at no point had that, it was like since the moment of her failed breakout back in season four, there had never come the point where Dario was faced with something that she, that was worth dying for worth giving up that chance of what might happen tomorrow. Right. Um, it was just always, always getting through to that. Even with, of course, Rogren's escape didn't require her death in order to, for it to come across. So that didn't really come up there exactly. But, um, uh, but even like risking her going with Rogren. Right, which would have been one way of risking you know, her life potentially for something there. Right, she was outside of Rogren's escape attempt. She was a, obviously a accomplice yeah. to him, but right. she wasn't part of it. So yeah. she had plausible deniability afterwards. She right. wasn't going to be the one who got punished for whatever happened. Right. So she could do that with minimal cost to herself and minimal yeah. loss and harm to other people. Yeah. This is something that she knows that's not true. She knows that there's going to be a consequence to stealing a Silmaril from Morgoth. Right, right. But she's okay um, with that. But she's okay with that, right. So this, so she's found this... And it's... And I'm trying to fit not only the... Um, um, not only the... Like, the, the, the fact that she's choosing something to die for outside of herself... Um, but again, she is she has found what she wants to spend her free will on, right? The thing, um, and it's how I'm trying to. I'm not articulating well in my own head what I'm trying to tease out here exactly. Stealing that she could contribute to a Silmaril being stolen from Morgoth, being liber- like liberating a Silmaril. Right. Mm-hmm. Setting a Silmaril free from bondage, right, is ultimately that's the thing Dario chooses she's going to die for, is to set free mm-hmm. a Silmaril. Um, and so. I guess I'm. And I know this got touched on in the episode. I'm just trying to sort of untangle the. 
the oath of Than. I know she hasn't personally taken the oath of Thanor, right? She's like mm. an in-law of the oath of Thanor, so it's not exactly as binding on her. But I'm just, I'm trying to, I'm trying to make sure that I can really understand what, like, symbolically, a Silmaril means to Dirio, right? Like yeah. uh, how this how it is fitting, how it works sort of thematically for the liberation of the Silmaril to be the thing that she's going to die. And that's going to be the culmination of her story. Yeah. I know that um, Katrin was thinking of the Feanorians as a whole of being supporters of the earth. Like right. obviously the only people who swore were Feanorian's sons, but everyone who went with them in the ships, who was part of all of that, Definitely join in Kinslings two and three. Yeah. 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 Like this group of people, they're, they're behind this and they support it and they're in favor of it and they're going to fight for it Mm because they do in the story. Yeah. Yeah. And Daryl is Kerfin's wife. So she didn't agree with her husband on everything. They have some disagreements in the few scenes she had with him (laughs) in in our show, Right. but she was on the ship with him and he was on Feanor's ship. Yes. So the entire passage across the ocean, she was with Feanor. Right. And presumably not standing around saying things like, I think we're making a mistake here. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> that exactly. was not the conversation on that ship. So even if she hasn't been a character that we focused on for that part of the story, she's part of all that. Right. And, but that, I think, is why that that's that's the that's the issue that I'm having. Right. Mm-hmm. Is that. The pure Oath of Feanor perspective, when you see Baron, like, running out of the the uh, Hall of Morgoth with a silver in his hand, the pure Oath of Feanor response is not like, yeah, go, we're getting rid of, we're getting a silver away from Morgoth. It's, hey, buddy, hand it over. <laughs> And that's not well, yours. Hand that and there, over. Right? There is a line in there where yeah, I remember she's the trying line. to rally everyone. She says, let's get this out the door, and then it'll be up to my husband to fulfill right. his oath if he still lives yeah. and all that. Like, right. whoever, whatever Feanorians are alive outside the gate, right. Right. they'll find that Silmaril. <laughs> she's not worried about that. Right. Um, but she wants to do what she can to get it to that step, because if this crazy person who just tried to steal Silmaril gets killed and captured in Angband, that Silmaril goes back to Morgoth. Yeah, and I guess. So at I, least I, if she gets yeah. it out the gate, then it's step one of fulfilling the oath of getting it back where it belongs. Right. Um, but it's not her oath. So it's like, it's not like she yeah. needs to personally claim it. No, no, I know it wouldn't compel her in the same way that it would compel Kurofin, for instance. But, mm-hmm. um, but still, I'm just, I, I guess what I was wrestling with was, on the one hand, this seemed like the Oath of Fanor, or the Oath of Fanor slash the link between the Fanorians and the Silmarils has pretty much been always a bad thing. Like, n- no good has come from that essentially since, I mean, the early days, like the making of the Silmarils may, you can argue that was a good thing before it went wrong, but, um, it went wrong pretty fast. It it went wrong pretty fast. Yeah. Anyway, point is it's been like Fanor's Fanorians and Silmarils in the same, has been bad news, like all constantly bad news in this moment. 
Duriel uh, the Feanorian, seeing the light of a Silmaril, has this redemptive transformation for her character. Uh, it's the first and perhaps the only time we're being asked to see that Feanorian connection with the Silmarils as actually having a positive impact on somebody's character. And that feels like a big deal. Um, I don't know if it's a big deal in the sense of like, that's, it doesn't fit. Like it doesn't, it, it goes too far, too deeply against the grain or if we're not making a big enough deal about it or what, because see, I, I could imagine, for instance, I could imagine that, what we see here is uh, almost something like because again the Silmarils are not evil, right? They're not evil. They're 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 wonderful. They're excellent. They're great. They're beautiful. Um, and even the love of of Fanor for his work is not intrinsically evil. Witness Aule's compassion with his point of view, right, uh, about the the breaking of the Silmarils uh, with the trees. Um, Again, it, again, not defending Fan or or his, but but there's there's that there's it's not, it was not evil from the beginning, right? No, but it's pretty clear what is evil about all of this, and right. that is the possessiveness. <laughs> That's the right. problem. The right. willingness to go kill people over it. That's the problem. Right. So, so Fanor's hoarding instincts was the issue, yes. and Duriel while making a choice that is not in any way repudiating the oath is still go be free Silmaril. Yes. So she's not being possessive of it. And that the glimpse of it like, um, okay. <laughs> this parallel might not work, um, at all, <laughs> but it's like when she sees the light of the Silmaril in the darkness, she is surrounded by, she is surrounded by the deepest of darkness, right? She is in the pits of Angban has been there for decades. How long has it been? It's been a long time. She'd been there for a long time, right? Yeah. She was captured probably around before the year 100. And this is the year 460. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I she's don't know exactly in, what year, but she's been in the pits of Agban for centuries. And in that moment before the Silmaril comes, she is in like wrapped in her deepest personal darkness, right? In her own reflections on how she has bottomless dreaded herself, even this by through preserving herself from bottomless dread. Right. And in the mm. midst of that, like deepest and darkest, of darknesses that has surrounded any character in this whole show. I mean, you could argue, right, that Dario is in the darkest place of anybody ever um, in this show so far. Um, anyway, whatever. But point is, she's in this huge, and then the light of the Silmaril breaks out, right? And when she sees the light of the Silmaril, she doesn't have, like, ye old Fanorian response to that, right? Mm. She does not have feel the, the impulse. Like, basically, her own recognition of the Silmaril, her own uh, love and admiration of the Silmaril is like purified in that moment of the pure light shining through in the darkness. And it's like, here's the analogy, which is silly, but that she has a moment um, where the true spirit of Christmas uh, comes through to her heart. Right. And she, um, and her heart changes and expands uh, uh, and, and she is 
in that moment transformed now to make the decision and to go out and act completely differently than she had acted before. In which case, what we would be seeing here is essentially not just this moment of shift in Diriel's own character. It's almost like the, um, the redemption of the Oath of Fanor itself. Right. Like this is what like a return to like a cleansing of that Feanorian love and desire for the Silmaril cleansed from all of the possessiveness that has tainted it since Feanor started tainting it. Right. Um, anyway, I, I it, maybe I'm belaboring it too much, but it, but that feels important to me, like even as a as a separate glimpse, um, as a separate moment that I wonder we might be able to use that again, like that this concept or this moment, this this recollection later on. I hope so, yeah. Because yeah. um, we have a couple of characters who are going to have second thoughts about the Oath of Feanor yeah. in the future. Yeah. So we can maybe play with this with some of them. Um, obviously, the people who actually swore it aren't going to do anything useful, but yeah. yeah, we can, yeah, we can recall this again but this happening in Luthien's presence I think works much better than if like there's no there's nobody who swore the oath there and who mm -hmm. is there is Luthien so that allows for the opportunity for that redemptive reaction because um, with Luthien everybody who meets her loves her but some people are selfless love I'll do anything for you Luthien AKA Huan. And then some people are, I must make you mine and stick you in a dungeon. The Morgoth side of things, in fact. So right. the, I will destroy you because you are here and I want you to be mine forever and no one else can have you. A little bit of Kelegorm's reaction as well. I so just that had an idea. I just had an idea. What if this connection between Diriel and Luthien and the Silmaril is what explains why the Feanorians won't go after the Silmaril while Luthien lives? There's an opportunity to do something in Mandos with our recently dead characters, which includes Diriel. Um, but the Feanorians aren't going to know about this. Well, I was thinking about that. Like, how so would they know? It would have, it? Yeah, so Diron would, would have to, have to get the story, the story. From, from Luthien and then yeah. make this awesome lay about it and then share it around all of Beleriand. And <laughs> that's what he's going to do in his epic journey is tell everybody <laughs> what Luthien did. And the family's like, like, oh, can't touch her then. And Daryl gave her a stamp of approval. <laughs> um, yeah, I, 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 I was thinking about the dissemination of the of the story um but i luthien uh uh telling the story like and i know like we're not going to have luthien and kurafin meet and you know have no. tea to talk this over afterwards but um but the news can get back and they can make that decision to hold off on account of yeah yeah um and <sighs> It literally didn't even occur to me until this exact moment that we just had Kurafin trying to kill Luthien and Diriel sacrificing her life to save Luthien within two episodes of each other. Like it that occurred literally to us. didn't even occur to me. 
<laughs> so, yes, yes. Like, this is just another reason that I'm thinking, like, this, we can't, however we do it, we can't keep this connection a secret. Right. You know, Once you invent something like this, the viewers, you know. we have to have this carry forward in the story. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't think, because um, um, she, it's not like she would hide this. I mean, no, like, no. And the the way it could come up is, I mean, we're going to have a whole season next season of the Union of Mithros and the decision to do the near knife. Yeah. Obviously, that's a oh hey, let's go attack Morgoth now. The oath is a good part of that, right. and directing the oath at Angband rather than at Luthien is a choice that needs to be made. Because yes. the, the, there's one real easy film reel to go get, the one that's yeah. down in Assyrian, <laughs> and then there's the two really hard ones to get that are in Angband, and they choose right. Angband. Right. So they do right. make that choice, and I'm not saying that it was a hard choice to decide to fight the bad guy instead of Luthien, but... but it's not like they, it's a no-brainer either, given the Feanorian yeah. track record. So yeah, uh, yeah. Eventually yeah. they are going to go after the, exactly. the film reel they think they can get. So eventually that's that's going to happen, but but not at first. So yeah, I yeah. think I think that some respect for Daryl's sacrifice might play into that discussion. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Um yeah, no, I, I think it's yeah. We can figure out the mechanics of it later, but I, I, I wouldn't think But let's not forget this, yes. But yeah, this is this is I, I this This is why I wanted to tease out the whole light of the Silmaril thing and where it fits into Daryl's choice and everything, because I just this feels to me like a a scene which is going to be crucially important later on. We're getting something, we're seeing something with a Feanorian and the Silmaril here that has never been and is going to be very relevant later on. Um, yeah. The, I mean, even Magalor deciding to throw his away. Yes. That exactly. choice yeah. can No, I was just thinking this. of, I was yeah. just thinking of, I was just imagining Magalor and Mithros bringing up this moment when, you know, they're having their debate prior to, uh, you know, after the War of Wrath. Um, Yeah, yeah, I, I, um, yeah. Okay, so I'm glad I, but now let me come back and ask a question I was going to ask about Gulen. Okay, so what is Gulen's trajectory? That was also a little bit less clear to me. So he, um, he, like, on the one hand, he gains respect for Dirio. But I was not really sure that, I mean, he, but he gains respect from her because like, from his point of view, she like comes over to his side, right? Like, so she was wrong all along and I I was right the whole time that like active resistance is the way to go. Right. And then uh, like, as soon as I start doing it, because it could even seem to him like she was following in his footsteps. Because he doesn't even know, right? He's out there fighting, and then she piles in and helps rescue him. And he's grateful and stuff, right? But he doesn't have any clue of the context of what just happened there. or any. Or, so I felt like Gulen, it, it seemed to me, was ending this episode almost as ignorant as he started it. Well, well, but I, I wasn't sure of that. It, well, in that case, I think we need to, to clarify a few things. Because it's, it's intended to be a little bit more complicated than that because it's not necessarily just that she was wrong and he was right um right he he realizes that the good that just happened would not have happened had she been had her mind overthrown or been killed right like 
the the evil was good to have been right we it, like and so we have to illustrate that sense of you um, always kind of have a purpose and when you take yourself off the board all of the opportunities for that for any purpose is, uh, are gone your choices have ended yeah and we we do see him figuring out that you know just resisting all the time is just going to get people killed so right. you got to choose your battles and like choose right. fewer <laughs> choose right. one <laughs> right and, and i i, and I so he, the, he's, yeah. that's his growth for the episode is you can only yeah. choose one and he chooses to save the, his companions at right. his own cost he knows there's going right. to be a cost right. and when she's dying he lies to her and we don't see a lot of good guy characters in tolkien be dis- dishonest or untruthful so he he basically is telling her, oh, everything's fine. Like, it's all great. Despite, like, pay no attention to the Balrog behind the curtain. Right. Right. Um, and he does it as a kindness to her. But it's it's a lie. And his, you can't compromise. You have to fight. You have to resist. He chooses the lie there. And mm-hmm. I, I think that shows his... Um, softening to the idea of hey Mm -hmm. you're gonna have to make a lot of compromises here at least choose kindness yeah by the way i loved uh how we maintained the balrog rule there right a balrog came on the scene or threatened to come on the scene and diriel snuffs it immediately doesn't even make it all the way on screen right like it yeah yeah uh, and for those who are new, it's been a long time since we talked about that. The Balrog rule is that when a Balrog comes on the screen in combat, a named, like a prominent named character has to die. Um, yes, so yeah, that was that was so we 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 maintained the Balrog rule. I like that. Um, yes, despite him not being not a being actually the one to kill her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. But uh, yeah, yeah. So we technically technicality there, but it worked. Yeah, no, it was good. But the it was um. Good. The, the outcome of all this is that there had been tension between the two groups of elves. And one of the things Daryl said to Gulen as soon as he started all this was, what, you're going to fight the other prisoners? What good is that going to do? Like, we're all right. in the same terrible boat together, like, figure yeah. it out. So right. at the very end, you see the groups united. And they're like, okay, we're all, we're all together. Right. We're all <laughs> we'll together. figure this out yep. together. Yep. And so that's Gulen's arc to this point. It's not the end of his story yet. So he might still be a little naive. He might still be a little whatever, but he's obviously had some hard lessons and we are going to be killing him at the end of next season. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know what the intentions are for stories in Angband in season seven, but he's now available. If we want to tell a story with him to bring him to a point that leads up to that moment, we can. But we don't have so many interlocutors for him left. <laughs> well, did you notice how many named characters there were in this episode? I did. There were a lot. Catherine was very good about naming everyone. So what that means is plenty of interlocutors. <laughs> well, I, did, I, was, I wasn't 100% sure how many of them had survived. I thought a bunch well, of Well, yeah, we killed a few died. of them off. Yeah. But um, we Including should still Limping have... Including Elf, uh, who was, yeah. uh, uh, who got a name again. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to remember which one Limping Elf it was. was but yeah. T. Uh, but, um, okay. Because, yeah. Uh, uh, but I believe Damrod is still alive. Damrod, yeah. 
So, and he was he was Daryl's like secondhand guy. So right. Presumably, we still have a representative from that camp. Yeah. Right. So yeah. Damrod would be the voice of that group moving forward. Yes. Catherine um, definitely took a page out of George Lucas's, you know, building a universe handbook, name everything and everybody. Right. Um, and right. but I'll tell you, like doing that sort of thing is going to pay off. Like yeah. naming characters so that we can use them in meaningful ways later is important. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Who knows? Maybe we'll be casting them in future seasons. Uh, but uh, <laughs> anyway, um, I, one last thought about Guilin, and that is one, one thing I thought might be a helpful kind of clarification. And that is clarifying exactly what it was that he like thought he was seeing. So his view of Dario at the beginning, right? Um, there are sort of three options, like three bad options, like for somebody who has gone bad and like is being rep- a, a reprehensible prisoner, right? From his perspective, right? One would be, um, to have like completely given up and have lost all will to resist, that would be merely pitiable, right? But like to 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 be essentially like you have the spell bottomless dread put on you. The th- second would be to be an active collaborator. That is, and and the hallmark of that would just be selfishness. Like you have chosen to profit yourself off of the suffering of your fellow elves, right? And the third would be you have yourself actively become evil and you are now actively on Morgoth's side, right? And so it wasn't clear to me at the beginning like what which of those three camps he thought Dario was in and how from that initial conception his idea changed. The, so that 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 might be one way to kind of clarify a little bit more Exactly, Mm -hmm. because it was, it it seemed to be kind of negative in the sense of like we're resisting, you should resist too. Um, That, in other words, that that what he was noticing was that she wasn't resisting, and again, there were like different ways not to resist, right? Um, Right. Yeah. So the accusations can be a little more pointed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And I think my my theory would be that he would think she was in camp number two, that she Mm -hmm. was an active that basically she was just um, interested in nothing other than saving her own skin. And I mean, she wasn't a collaborator in the sense of like being a profiteer. Like she wasn't thriving, you know, on the suffering of others. Um, no, no one's thriving in this environment. <laughs> no, no. But like, it's possible like in an occupied situation to be a collaborator who oh, does for sure. you know, to be like, like, a, I said, I, like all a New the Testament real life Jewish situation... tax collector or something like that, collaborating yeah. with the Romans, you know, all, like all the real life examples are awful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Really, awful. really awful. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Or to but, be like a like... Nazi collaborator. Yeah. There's all mm-hmm. kinds of, yeah. 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 Um, yep. No, exactly. So I would think that like that would be probably because he probably doesn't think that. I mean, maybe he has a notion like, are you actually like evil? Are you a servant? Are you a willing servant of Morgoth now? But he probably would see that that's not the case. But he would. So I think he'd probably end up putting her in that middle camp. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. And he's not entirely wrong. I mean, to avoid the spell of bottomless dread, she's been willing to do a lot. Yes. And yes. 
the reason and she didn't get followed up with that the same way Adelos did is because she basically swore obedience to Angband. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that's not something an elf would typically do. Right. Um, so right. that's she took a, she took this a step way too far at the beginning. Yeah. And thought it was worth it. Yeah. He's allowed to call her on that and be like, "Why are you doing what Angband's telling you to do? How is that helpful?" Mm-hmm. And if if we want to make more blatant accusations, we can have him say something like, "You're helping him fight his war. How do you think we got captured? You know, right. it's your fault that we're here. <laughs> right. It's yeah. your fault that you're, that you're. You know, yes. If you if you, yes, you're yeah. you're 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 helping Angband in order to save your own skin." Right. Um, Which would yeah. mirror her comment that, like, keep doing what you're doing, you're going to end up dead in a ditch. Like, she doesn't see his way as viable for survival reasons. Right. He, he doesn't see her method as viable for like moral being reasons. able to live with yourself yeah. reasons. Yeah. Exactly. And right. but she does think that he's. She does genuinely think he's being naive. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. You know, and and understandably so. Like she's and she's pretty understanding of his perspective throughout like she's she's Mm -hmm. pretty willing to give to be like look i i get it right like i i i know exactly how you feel i have felt that way yeah many times but it's been long enough she doesn't necessarily have a lot of respect for that viewpoint anymore and some of the way she speaks about fingolfin early on is pretty dismissive like he threw his life away. What was that worth? Kind of thing. Yeah. Again, yeah. with the, if you don't have survival, then you can't do anything more. Like right. you're done accomplishing things. If you haven't got your health, you haven't got anything. <laughs> I was just about to say that. Yes, exactly. Exactly. No, no, I, I agree. Okay. Now that's, that's all, that's all much clear. I, I, I'm feeling much more comfortable with the, with the captive mm. situation. And like I said, at the beginning, this was a really complex um yes interrelation of things to try to depict yes and yeah 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 i mean anytime you have a significantly philosophical storyline it's gonna yeah. get complicated yes. yeah and so i mean this wasn't like an afterbirth storyline but it was right. a right yeah what's Absolutely. the best thing to do in a really really bad spot mm-hmm. and there's right yeah I mean, and like you said, it's the have you forgotten the death option? (laughs) And she has because she thought that that meant it's over and she doesn't want it to be over. She still wants to be able to do a thing. So, so yeah, not as the final surrender, but as the uh, actual escape is, I think, a really important thing there. Mm. Yeah, the whole release from bondage resulting in Luthien becoming mortal is like it's hard to avoid that <laughs> interpretation here. Yeah. Yes. Yes it is. Yes it is. Um yeah. and one thing uh, that I I really can, like because she has become a legitimate tool of Morgoth and in allowing her life to end she has robbed him of that. Mhm. 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 You know. Yeah. And I also knew that we have been maintaining this thing where if you swear an oath, if you break the oath, you die. And that's why we killed off one of the twins in the ship burning because he was going to turn back and then, right. oh, look, he's dead. Yeah. Um, 
So she swore loyalty to Angband, and now she helped a Silmaril escape. And wouldn't you know it, she's dead in the, in the next scene. Like, we're maintaining that. I don't think she died because of her oath. I think she died because she was fighting for something where she didn't care if she died. So right. she kept fighting until she died. Can we arrange this, the setting so that she winds up dying in a ditch of some kind? <laughs> no, because Gwilin's holding her. So, right. so what? You can't they hold could both somebody be in a ditch? Dead in a ditch usually means yeah. off to the side of the road. Yeah. And then like road kill. where no one cares about you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's the, the implication but, there. If but someone's thing, cradling you in their arms in the ditch, you've lost the dead, dead, dead in a ditch thing, basically. Well, yeah. it, it actually, like, just having the visual be that because it would take them also out of view from a greater distance so that, like, it can kind of give them a certain amount of isolation for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. While also, also giving us at least a little bit of irony, basic, because <laughs> she says that Gwilin will, that will be Gwilin's fate, and in fact it is. Yeah, I, well, I, um, I thought we were just going to get that by having him yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. We'd, we'd have that too. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's uh, he's not going to survive this ordeal. Um, no. No. And uh, at least the majority of his body parts could get thrown into a ditch. But anyway, let's talk about Baron and Luthien. Um, uh, yeah. This is the Baron and Luthien season. After absolutely. All. But not this, only that, a key episode in their story. They a key episode the in their story. <laughs> And yet, like, the B-plot you guys developed was so fascinating and compelling. It's what I wanted to spend most of my time talking about. And, of course, actually, this all makes a good deal more sense than it might seem on the surface. Because, yes. once again, this is a an episode where we there was comparatively little improvisation with the Baron and Luthien story. Like, most of the stuff. And, cause, and I was certainly noticing, Maria, as you added on the top of the slide here... Um, uh, it was like super Lay of Lathian from beginning to end, right? Like we do have the one version of this story which gives more detail about this segment, and that is the Lay of Lathian. Um, and of course, for people who don't know or don't remember, the Lay of Lathian ends with Karkaroth ch- uh, chomping off Baron's hand. So like it gets right up to the end of this episode is where he wrote the Lay of Lathian and then stopped. So it's... um. It is it is a really fun way to sort of acknowledge like the end of the Lay of Lathian by um, by really giving it its final hurrah in, in episode ten here. Um, I loved the um, I, I didn't look it up, but Luthien's song that she sings to Karkaroth is word for word from the Lay of Lathian, right? As I believe I'm, so. I, yeah, I was I thought yeah. I recognized that. There yeah. there are several passages, and Catherine did a great job of adapting portions of the lay because yes i was there were several uh, times that kept uh, especially in the in the throne room scene like yes. it, it kept it kept yeah. uh kept welling up yeah because you you can't really have people speak in verse to each other for like three pages so, right. so you have to do a lot of i mean you yeah. could but but we didn't so unless you're tom bombadil but yeah no exactly exactly yeah, I, the, yeah. and i mean and of course i mean from the from karkaroth um, because Luthien smells like elves, right? So uh, uh, it, yes. it's 
<laughs> Seriously. And I, I, I know. It's exactly yeah. what happens in that scene. It's exactly what happens. Uh, so, um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's so, so many places. I mean, I was, it was, it was very Lay of Lathian, which I loved. Um, mm. But again, for that reason, because Katrine was following the Lay of Lathian so closely, um, again, of a lot of the story here is, um, was sort of, there were fewer decisions in, in, in some ways to be made here. Mm. Right. Right. So, uh, Tolkien wrote parts of this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in fact, exactly. Which is handy. It was thoughtful of him right. to have gone to that effort on our behalf. Really, really nice. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, I, mm. one thing I thought was interesting, by the way, I loved the, um, uh, you know, we spent a lot of time last episode talking about the, um, you know, the Haim and the the fell, right? And mm-hmm. the the the, mm-hmm. uh, the transformation and the untransformation, and um, Katrin managed to do that like seven times, right? I mean, they're like coming in and out of disguise all the time, um, and um, and she usually makes it happen like pretty subtly and like even off screen uh often um anyway I, I i thought that was just i because we had just spent so much time talking about that i was very conscious of it every time it it it, it came up and i thought it was handled really deftly every single time i thought that was really cool yeah and that's part of the challenge with a visual medium is that the audience is going to remember what you just did you can't repeat things mm-hmm. you can reference them but right. if you literally did the same sequence seven times in a row um, this is only acceptable in like children's cartoons and such. You can't just right. do that. Right. So, so yeah, I think Katrin took a lot of attention to the detail of, well, what do I show this time? What's the important part of this uh, sequence and how much can I show by someone else's reaction to it? Yeah. Right. right. Instead of yep. seeing it. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, she, she put a lot of attention to detail based on the yeah. conversation. No, that was had. great. That was, that was really, that was, I thought was, that was, that was, that was really well done. I loved all of those elements and just um, what it provided, you know, with the opportunity for, to get more conversation between the two of them, more interaction mm-hmm. between the two of them. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the one part, as I said at the very beginning, the one part that was not even is not even detailed in the Lay of Lathian is the descent, right? Correct. Correct. Um, and I honestly couldn't tell as I was reading it through. I couldn't tell whether I liked or disliked the fact that Baron and Luthien, as they were descending, were like. Um, struggling or almost struggling with navigation basically right there was like the the sheer intimidation of angband is dark and vast and um it's hard enough to break into here right but once you're in here like what are you looking for and where do you go like, there's a part of me that really liked that it was a part of me that found it a little bit anticlimactic right to have baron and luthien you know, descending into Angband and basically coming to places where they're like, do we turn left or right? Right. Like that was that f- there were moments where that felt almost, almost anticlimactic. Mm. And yet 
again, but I wasn't sure I disliked it either. Like it, it where, because the, the whole idea of, um, and especially the way the, the mere fact that they had to like wind their way through like where there were prisoners and corpses and, and, and everything else. Um, so that it like cumulatively began to like overwhelm Luthien's spirits with her compassion for the suffering, her, you know, the oppression of the evil and her compassion for the suffering of the elves that they were passing. Um, I mean, I, I liked that sort of overall effect. So, um, but, I, but I was, I wasn't, this is why I'm not even really sure exactly how I felt about mm. this, but it was, it definitely was seemed to me one of the most noticeable choices in that way. Notice, for instance, um, notice how Tolkien avoids this in the Lord mm. of the Rings, for instance, right? Like the highway to the cracks of doom. Once they, you know, once Sam gets up the mountain and they strike the highway, there's no, you know, there's no like, and at the last second, you know, are they going to turn down a blind passage accidentally and how to like the, you know, it's just like, yeah. The, on the on the other hand, Shelob's lair. Right. They do right. turn down the wrong passage and hit yep. the wall and, and have to and turn around and go end. back. Yeah. And right. then that becomes important later because that wall is how the orcs get in and da 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 da. Right. But right. there's a lot of wandering around lost in Shelob's lair. Yep. Yeah, there is. Um though the wandering around lost in Shelob's lair leads to that feeling of being like where Tolkien accomplishes much more subtly what Peter Jackson accomplishes with enormous webs, right? And Frodo mm. getting entangled in the webs, right? That sense of being trapped and ensnared, um, nets in a net, as Sam says, right? Like that, um, I don't know. I parallel it, my instant parallel was to the Cracks of Doom because I, the, this is this is like the center the end. right this is the, yeah. yeah this is the end this is the big boss um or what feels like it should be the big boss right it's not actually in the sense the big boss confrontation um that will be mandos really right um thematically and yeah she's not but... gonna put him to sleep <laughs> right exactly. exactly well and that's that's like we've seen with Sauron take the tower down and Morgoth throws that in her face. Like, good luck taking this place down. (laughs) I don't have that weakness. And can't. So she's like, Oh, right. Sleep time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, with Mandos, if if she has nothing left as far as power goes to influence him, just, you know, pity. Yeah. So I, but I mean, and certainly, Pity, as you say, right? Like, th- that's yet another reason why the accumulation of pity as she descends, as they descend, right, through uh, and see all these things seems very apt, right? Uh, because this is going to, it is the suffering that was almost overwhelming her in Angband, which is, which she's going to sing about in Mandos, right? So um, that. Like I said, I'm not saying I dislike the more gradual descent um, of Baron and Luthien, but um, yeah, I'm to say I'm not sure what I'm saying. But but there, there well, were moments when it felt like yeah. on the cusp of anticlimax. Well, if the if the general idea is if you want to get to Margaret's throne room, you just keep going down. Right. There seems to be an inevitability to it. There. Right. 
Right. There's always a way down. It's, it's yes. a pit. You just keep going into the pit. Like in Dante over here. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. We had planned out that Ang Band would be concentric circles getting smaller and smaller and smaller back in season two. Right. Um, so Catherine obviously kept that uh, design With or without ice in at mind. the bottom. Yes. 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 Well, you know. You know. Um, <laughs> yes. The, uh, but yeah, so the, with that kind of design, there is an inevitability to the path. Right. It's not a maze like Moria. Right. Right. But at the same time, it's claustrophobic and you can't always see where you're going. So, mm -hmm. and it's easy to get confused and disoriented. So I, I don't know. I, I agree that there's a balance to be had between a, oh yeah, we just go down there and it should be an effort and a struggle to keep going. I think I have an idea of a revision that might kind of clarify or simplify, streamline that a little bit. Mm -hmm. In retrospect, the moments where I felt most at risk of anticlimax is when they're interacting with like lesser minions of Morgoth on the way down. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, not like when they're seen, right? Or when, but um, when they're actually like stopping to interact with them. Well, there was a goal to have a little touch of the Luthien effect on the descent into Angband, and it's right. it's got to be subtle because she can't do anything. Right, right. But if we wanted to have at least springing uh, up an Angband that would be suspicious. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So. Did you want fewer interactions in that part, or because we we didn't want to cut that entirely? That's by the kind Luthien of... effect, you mean the effect she has on others? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. that I think is fine. It was okay. like um, any kind of like dialogue between them and orcs or werewolves or anything else. That's those are the parts that felt unnecessary. Like. Um, yeah. Like the part where the orcs are sitting there and they're talking about being late for the feast and going down and like right before going into the, like that yeah. scene. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. But like what I... about when Baron rescues the guy who's going to get eaten by the werewolf? Um. By claiming that that's his food. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm okay with that, with the rescue. Okay. Um. Mm -hmm. I'm okay with the rescue, though. I think I was expecting more payoff at the end of the episode from the rescued elf. Like, do we see the rescued elf again? When, when He's part of. Elf? He goes back to be part of Daryl's group. Um, so we do see him again at some point. I forget where he is and all of that. But it, it wasn't a big payoff in the sense of. They didn't save anybody. Like, they didn't actually save anyone in Engbit. Right. And right. I, I thought that was only fair because Engbit is a terrible Angband. place. Yeah. And yeah. even if yeah. Luthien goes there, it's still a terrible place. Yeah. So, like, there was a constraint on how much they could accomplish. But, you know, that guy had a better day than he was going to have. Yeah. And he could yeah. then go back and do a kind thing for someone else. I think he is one of the people helping distribute things later or something. So yeah. He's... I, I think I was looking for more of the Luthien effect from him, like for him okay. to be 
like altered in some way, even for him to, um, I don't know, be there to help Dirio to be instrumental in Dirio's turn. And somehow at the end, I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't have concrete ideas about exactly how I would have wanted that to pay off. But, um, but instead of having Damrod be there talking with Dirial in that moment, have Werewolf Dude be the one who's standing there. and Or have where Damrod be Werewolf Dude or whatever. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Yeah. It's something yeah. to make it more something to make. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that's so like basically... Duriel, who has seen the light of the Silmarils and had her moment, right, is talking to the person who's encountered Luthien and who has, like, I, that, like, the, when they're, because, like, nothing good happens in Angband, right? And this person has just had something good happen to them. They don't understand it, right? But they've had something good happen to them. Um, and so that seems, yeah, I, I don't know. Like I said, I didn't have a specific payoff in mind, but I felt But, but like you it, wanted more payoff. I wanted more payoff, yeah. Okay. I wanted more we payoff. Can, we can pass that along to Catherine. I'm sure she can yeah, emphasize yeah. that dude's role in the in the climate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he can die or he can not die. I mean, he can be one of the ones who, you know, he, like, if like Damrod survives, then we can, you know, whatever. We could have it be him. Um, uh, yeah. Um But yeah, I mean, again, the, the, the main bits, like I had, uh, in some ways, I feel like um, Katrin, with the way that she has deployed the Lay of Lathian, has kind of um, disarmed. Oh, and I, like, I was already, I'm like, okay, Luthien dancing before Morgoth, let's go, let's talk about what are we doing here. And there are still questions I have, right? Um, but, uh, but I felt like a lot of it was kind of... Um, I mean, I was getting the Lay of Lathian vibe so thoroughly through that scene that I had fewer questions. But but let me go ahead and ask my awkward dancing question. Um, like, what moves do you pull out in front of Morgoth? Like, how does that dance go? I mean, she's dancing. It's, this is it's another, it's a classic example, right? You can say in a book, she danced. And walk away, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> With an actual so, actress on screen, we gotta we gotta choose the moves here. So the one thing that is in the lay that we did not have in the script is I noticed. <laughs> I thought you might have is the moment where Luth- uh, Morgoth reaches for Luthien and she sidesteps him, right? Yeah, um, because they have dialogue, but that that particular moment doesn't happen. Oh, well, I was, I was talking about like the lines which could be taken as actively flirtatious with Morgoth. Oh, that, well, that, yeah, that's good. That's gone too. But I I figured you noticed that as well, but, but that that. moment of him reaching and her sidestepping, when you say, what does the dance look like? There's some of that going on. Right. Uh, She's dancing in a hostile environment. So her main goal has to be to get away from avoidance of. Yeah. 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 It's a crowded room. Right. It was. I mean, it was described. Yeah. Right. So she's dancing around this room, not touching anyone. And yet her cloak is coming with her and that's touching everybody. And so she's untouchable and yet in contact with everyone because it's close. So, you know, that kind of choreography. Okay. Okay. Do we have orcs and like are 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 people making grabs at her that she's dodging as she's dancing? 
I don't know how. Does it become a quasi like action sequence kind of thing there? Not exactly like a full blown martial arts fighting sequence or anything like that. But is there, is the, is it, I mean, I could see things sort of happening like that. I mean, she's singing a lullaby while doing this. So, I mean. (laughs) Which is awesome. Like, the idea of someone, like, you know, doing, you know. Avoidance tactics. (laughs) Right. Like, like, like dancing, which is like a a first cousin to a martial arts, you know, uh, routine while singing a lullaby. I mean, there's nothing that's not awesome about that in my head. So, um Well, but yeah. Also, you can uh, you can avoid a lot of this stuff um, with how you shoot it. Like if right. when we're shooting her, we're not showing people around her, or if like we illustrate the magical quality of her dance by like completely washing out the background mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when we're looking at her. Um that that would make a huge difference in yeah yeah and and token does imply that she uses the full space not just the floor right so you you could do some 3d stuff with the yes choreography if you wanted to yes yes luthien dancing in all the dimensions yes yes um yeah yeah um yeah uh okay um but yes i did notice that we stayed miles away from the innuendo of the lay of lathian yeah well uh, apparently both cat well katrin alana and i are all like oh you know the best passage of that part of the lay is when morgoth starts talking about crushing flowers like that's the part you want right so we were all agreed that that's what needed to be in there. Agreed. Agreed. I like it. I like it. <laughs> that's what's um, in there. Just no, no yeah. flirting. <laughs> no flirting. No flirting. Yeah. And um, I know, I know you'd mentioned the threat to Eowyn um, from the Witch King, right? Yeah. So the idea was that we don't know what Morgoth is intending to do to her, but something terrible. Yes. 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 Um, yeah. Question. Last question. The Silmarils. Um, how Morgoth, Silmarils in his crown, facing Luthien, mm-hmm. right? There's a certain amount of, like, this is a big deal. Right. I mean, like when Luthien and the Silmarils are in the same room for the first time ever, right? Like the most beautiful work of craftsmanship ever and the most beautiful of all the children of Iluvatar. Like this is a lot of beauty in one room, right? The most and... beautiful work of of a incarnate craftsman and the most beautiful work of 
the, the original craftsman. craftsman. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and there's like, so, and there, there's Car a certain me. there's a certain reflectiveness there, emphasized by Morgoth's yeah. desire, right? Morgoth, so like Morgoth, whether he physically reaches out to her or whether his just, you know, his desire to ensnare her and keep, and as you say, whatever it is, we don't know exactly what he was planning to do to her or with her. But the the fact that he's wearing the Silmarils in his crown is itself kind of suggestive of the general trend of his thought towards, you know, mm. be, towards beautiful things like Luthien, right? I mean, we, we see what he's done with the one we can kind of imagine what he's going to do with the other. Right. And, um, so I, um, I am thinking, so this is not like a, like a correction or, or whatever, just a, a general sort of suggestion that I think a, um, whatever happens in the dancing scene, there needs to be a clear sort of mirroring between Luthien and the Silmarils in some sense, like I, the, the parallelism there, I think needs to be, needs to be clear. And that will help, I think, to inform the kind of vague general, but ominous and creepy sense of what Morgoth intends to do. I know that we had discussed earlier that the Silmarils could um, change their brightness and appearance based on their mood. Right. Um, to an right. extent so they could flare brightly or dim down or have softer colors or more striking colors. Right. You know, just they look like whatever we want them to look like, essentially. Right. And right. stage spotlights yeah. on Luthien while she dances, you know, yeah. You know, whatever. Yeah. But yeah. I do think that they've been imprisoned in the Iron Crown for a long time. They're probably kind of dull and dim most of the time. For a Silmaril. I mean, I'm not saying right. they wouldn't stand right. out in the Pits of Angband, but <laughs> right. they're, you know, medium bright. And then Luthien walks in, <laughs> flares! flares. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, I, I think when you're saying in that interaction, when Morgoth and Luthien are talking to each other, the Silmarils can respond to her, and they would respond by changing in some way, whether it's yes. Yes. flashing or getting bright. And, I mean, you know. Not to the point of a spotlight, maybe, but but yeah, yeah. there probably would be parts of that scene where the illumination would be from the Silmarils, not from the pit of fire that's in the room or whatever else, right? Yeah. So if the yeah. Silmarils are providing the light, then we see that reflected off of Luthien. It's going to draw that parallel and connection. Yeah. And then, by the way, when Baron has the Silmaril in his hand and is carrying it out, it glows brightest of all. Right, like the, right. the the liberated Silmaril whose light frees Deriel up above is going to be like the, that is the, yes, the all three Silmarils on the Iron Crown should look dull and dim compared to compared the one Silmaril to. released. Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. And I, I know that's a little challenging because you don't want, like, ugly Silmarils under any circumstances. <laughs> right, right. But, but they can get much brighter and happier. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I have to say, high on my list of serious artistic challenges is the Silmarils in Morgoth's Iron Crown. Um, I, it's hard to do that well, 
I think. I mean, it's I've seen a bunch of images that I kind of like, but I've never seen one that I've totally loved that I feel like really nails the essence of the mythic concept of the Silmarils and the Iron Crown of Morgoth. Right. It's it's a it's a contrast that is very weird. And yes, you yes. need an ugly iron crown with beautiful, bright Silmarils trapped and light and darkness like, you know, him dark mm-hmm. and the Silmarils bright light without it looking like headlights, without it. Look- <laughs> right. There's so many ways in which it can look bad if you, you know. Um, yeah. So it's it's. Um, it is a challenge, yeah. It's a major challenge. And so I think that's... Um... But one for the art people. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yep, we're we're giving I them a few more months still to, to uh, yeah. <laughs> put some stuff to, together. <laughs> I would love to talk about this more when we do the when we talk about art stuff later on. But... Um, yeah. Not too uh, much later on. Only a couple months. Not too months, much later so. on. We're getting there. We're getting there. <laughs> yeah. Artists yeah. get to work. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I don't want to give the artists a false false sense of security that they have an infinite amount of time here. Yeah, that's true. We're 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 getting there. Um, all right. Well, we've uh, uh, it is it is late. Um, yes, it is. Okay, we just talked about the betrayal of Morgoth, Journey of the Eagles. Loved Hurin and Hur. That was great. Um, a uh, little cameo from Hurin and Hur, whom we won't have any idea who they are, but that's that. Excellent, right? These right. two teenagers in uh, in Gondolin, very cool. Um, the last glimpse of Dairon and the dog, I liked. Um, uh, that was uh, that was that that was good. Um, so anyway, yeah, I, the, the, I, this stuff I think was all. I, I was a big fan of the Huron and Huor cameo. I thought that was okay. a that was a brilliant seed planted for next 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 season when we're gonna yeah. go back I... and do that believe that was Alana's suggestion, mm. but it has been a very long time since that suggestion was made. <laughs> yes. Because yes. not even from the script discussion, that was made early in the season. And we're right. like, yeah, let's do that. And I, I think it was Alana. But... Yeah, no, that was cool. That was very cool. Um, okay. Uh, oh. Last point, which I meant to bring up earlier. Um the moment when Baron and Luthien are holding each other and talking before, you know, when she's having her hard time, right? And he sings. Um, mm-hmm. That moment, that is the stairs of Kirith moment. They're on some stairs when it happens. I noticed they were on <laughs> stairs. And like, I, I, I wanted I wanted more fan service at that moment. I wanted just a little bit more, and I'm not sure exactly what. Right, a little bit more explicit, like that. That I don't want anybody a to more schmaltz. I did. I wanted. More, I don't know what it was. I don't know if I wanted you know Baron and Luthien to be saying like, "Do you think someday someone will sing a lay about our story?" You know, I kind of. <laughs> Like, I'm not saying I necessarily wanted to go that far. Um, well, what that, about but... Baron the Brave? Luthien <laughs> yeah. wouldn't have gotten far without Baron. <laughs> exactly. yeah. But no, it can tie into Duriel's storyline. The whole right. idea of Duriel is if you're not there, you can't do things. So you have to keep being there so you can be the person to do the thing. If Luthien's like, this is a bit much, right. Baron could 
say something along the lines of, well, I don't want our story to end now. Let's let's keep going. Mm. And it will, is this a way to help you? Like we could put a line in there that is something about, yeah, this is tough, but we're going to keep going. And that would tie into the... It- it would tie into the it, whole, like, is this a happy ending story or a sad end story? Right, like, right. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Um, and, it's, and, and it's a perfectly apt moment within the context of this narrative. It's a perfectly apt moment for them to be talking about it. Because on the one hand, like, they've, I mean, they haven't won yet. Like, they haven't confronted Morgoth yet. They don't know what kind of story they're in either. <laughs> they don't know what kind of story they're in. And what's more, like, they've... They, no one thought they could anybody could get into Angband, right? And here they right. are. They've gotten into Angband. They've gotten down to the bottom. And then they're like, so, um, you know, here we are. Again, just like Sam and Frodo in Mordor, on the borders mm-hmm. of Mordor. And, um, and yet being like, so, you know, on the one hand, it seems like we are caught up in a in a big story. I mean, Baron thought he was just getting sent off to his death, right, mm. by her father. But it turns out, unbeknownst yeah. to her father, they are part of it. You know, this we were talking about doom, right? That he was, uh, you know, he was perceiving that that this doom lies upon him and can't be and can't be escaped. Just in the in the last episode, right? And mm-hmm. so, yeah, some kind of like contemplating on that, like you know, this is. Uh, there is a great doom at work in this and like, but like, but we don't know if this is a happy ending story or a sad ending story, you know, kind of. We'll just have to keep so, going and see the end. <laughs> so Gothmog suddenly sh- shows up and says, you best start believing in demon stories, Missy. You're in one. <laughs> so, I, in hellfire stories. <laughs> in hellfire stories. Right. Right. Anyway. Yeah. I'm just saying like, I, that moment, that parallel, that was a gorgeous parallel. I just want to make sure we don't like lose any possible opportunity. So what you're saying that is that we need to to give the screenwriter a little bit of a bigger hammer. There is what you're saying. Yes, I okay. thought that there was. We a were trying very hard to be yeah. res- to restrain the use of the hammer. No, but pull out the hammer little... in that moment. Pull out the you hammer because, I, I, honestly, worse. It's worse to have it. Far worse than having someone say, oh, well, that was a little bit obvious and drawing the parallels to the stairs of Kirith would be anybody missing the, I mean, mm-hmm. that the moment, that, the way that they're, Frodo and Sam are thinking back to the Baron and Luthien moment, to miss the opportunity to have Baron and Luthien in the parallel moment having the same, th- I mean, like, we can't, mm-hmm. that's like top five in my list of callbacks that I would want to set up. <laughs> you know, I mean, we've already been working mm-hmm. on the singing to Mythros uh, parallel for Frodo and Sam and everything, right? Like, I mean, there's that, yeah. that's another one of my top fives, right? Is the singing to for the sure. person who was in prison up above. By um, the way, did, did you know, uh, did you see what I, uh, what I posted about, I re- had a re- sudden realization that that's not the only time that singing summons eagles. Right. Fifteen birds and five fir trees. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. So so for spontaneous eagle appearances. Rescue. Yeah. Yes. They're appear to be very often or almost always accompanied by a preceding song. Preceded by a right. song. Right. Uh, sometimes at some time delay, like Diron's song. Uh, yes. In, in the Chris Lagrim. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yep. 
Yeah. But anyway, no, I, so I, I just, I, that was, I, I almost forgot to mention the stairs of Kirith episode, which I definitely, well, guessed. we, we wouldn't want to forget to mention it. Um, no, bring out the hammer, <laughs> bring out the okay. hammer is my advice on that one. For okay. sure. For sure. Yeah. Um, but you know, um, one thing that was nice throughout the whole episode is, I mean, obviously she called it descent and there were stairs everywhere and people were always going down the stairs and including in the frame scenes, there was people going downstairs to meet mm. with each other. Like it, yeah so it was subtle and just setting things up and not yeah. like bashing you over the head with it in most places so if there's going to be one hammer we can put it on that, the stairs that's here. where i want the hammer for sure gotcha um <laughs> and one thing i would add you know as a another compliment to katrine and the wonderful work she did in this script never ever has the parallel between like the mythic shape of the Baron and Luthien story and it's parallel to the Orpheus and Eurydice story been clearer mm. to me than in this script. I don't know what yeah. it was exactly about it that helped to capture this, but um, the way in which the Baron and Luthien story, um, you know, plays off of that and evokes that same, the, 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 the mythic sense of the, mm-hmm. of Orpheus and Eurydice. Um, it's, it's never, I mean, it, it's an, on one level it's very clear but on another level it never really strikes me like i'm never i'm never thinking about orpheus and eurydice when i read the story in the because tolkien never writes about the trip to hell (laughs) he skipped that part he skips the actual descent right yeah and that's kind of a big part of that story (laughs) and i think that's i mean i realize the, the ascent is the more important part of that story right but even then he rushes through it and just like yeah they got out of there. And then, <laughs> and then they're at the gate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like, like wolf to Morgoth, back to wolf immediately. Right. So yeah. he implies that that all happens, but he doesn't yeah. write about it or spend any time there. And so if you don't spend time on the journey, it's not the same story. It's not the same story. <laughs> yeah. But no, it was, it was, like I said, I was, I was, it, it, I was feeling very like viscerally the spiritual connections between the story mm-hmm. and the, okay. the Orpheus and Eurydice story. I thought that was really powerful. And it was wh- whether that's it, whether it's the, the elaboration of the descent, um, whether even it was the, 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 the condition and situation of the prisoners making it feel more like hell in, that they were descending mm. into more, more like, uh, you know, uh, more like uh, Dante, as Nick and I are both alluding to with our backgrounds here. Um, it, it, um, it was whatever it was. That was the effect in the end that I found that it had, and I found that uh, I found myself kind of contemplating the connections between the Baron and Luthien story and Orpheus and Eurydice um, more. Like I, I was, I was considering that more and and finding the beauty in those parallels more striking um, here than I ever had before. I'd more yeah. often thought about it, of course, with Mendos, which of course is you know, like more obvious in some sense. Yeah. Um, but it's very powerfully active here in this sequence as well. Um, and so, like the the where like the Silmaril is like Eurydice basically, which is rescued and then mm. lost uh, right before they have finally escaped. Yeah. Um, anyway, so I, I just, so I, uh, so Katrin, whatever it was that you did, it was awesome <laughs> because that, that was, uh, that was, I, I felt like my, into, you know, 
this script really like in the in this way i feel like it, it has really like enriched my reading of the baron and luthien story so mm. that was that was that was i was i'm very grateful for that that's very cool well, that's high praise and that's awesome it's yeah. that was, it was phenomenal this is the fun of doing adaptation like this you know yeah. that you um and this is the thing that i always feel saddest when people are like afraid of adaptations or like, I'm afraid it's going to ruin the original. And I'm like, I, on the one hand, I can kind of understand what you mean. Um, though I always feel that anyone whose relationship with the original book is actually ruined by watching a bad movie that is adapting that book. I'm like, I have a hard time really understanding it, but in any case, uh, but like what you're missing is like there are so many things, even in thinking about and discussing where an adaptation didn't go well, goes wrong. still yeah. can serve to yeah. enrich your own reflections and understanding of a story. I, I this has been my experience, and this is why I have been become such a proponent of adaptation in general because I think it's it is this has been to the very great enrichment of uh, my own understanding both the process of doing an adaptation together here and the process of, you know, discussing and analyzing other adaptations and things. So mm. it's such a fun way to interact with a work yeah. that you enjoy. I mean, it is, it is. Yeah. yeah. I stay with no bias whatsoever. But <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Yes, exactly. All right. So our next session is in two weeks on Thursday, April 13th. Um, uh, and we'll be discussing. We're going straight through up to episode eleven. No, uh, no intermediate so. uh, 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 sessions here. Down in the home stretch. Well, it will be at the very home stretch, I think. Right, but although there's more in intermediate things yeah. left, yeah. we're just. Uh, and I it's don't... a good thing too because somebody keeps holding up the works for on episode thirteen. On episode thirteen, <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, I just wanted to let you know, Brian was very grateful that we haven't had the final script discussion yet. He said that uh, he might be able to join us for that one. I nice. think that would be great since he is, he is also a father now. Oh, hey, congratulations, Brian. Yep. That's great. Yep. That's great. <clears throat> oh, it is wonderful to see, um, you know, the, <laughs> the families of long time. <laughs> So film viewers <laughs> growing over time will be so before we get to the war of wrath will be celebrating oh, Nessa's God. high school graduation. No, 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 no. What we are doing is creating the next generation who's gonna go on it's and it. do the Lord of the Rings portion of film film it's because it. mm-hmm. realistically it's gonna be like twenty more years before we get there. Exactly. So, exactly. Um, anyway, so yeah, the so the script discussion um, uh, will be uh, April seventh, so fr- Friday, April seventh at eight p.m. Um, uh, so you can join on the same channels that this is being broadcast on now um, to join in the brainstorming session to figure out the details of episode thirteen, and then um, the trip to Mandos. Trip to Mandos. It's the big deal. Big, big finale of, uh, of of season six. And then meantime, we will discuss episode 11, which is the recovery episode, right? Do we do we yes. do, do we get married or does the wedding happen in 12? No, uh, uh, the wedding is technically a, like a tag. And then yes. the, okay. the focus of the wedding will be the beginning of 12. Yes. Right. OK. All right. So we're, so we we're get up, up to, to the wedding, but not quite including the full wedding. OK. All yeah. right. So that's um. 
so that is uh, that is episode eleven. Next time, awesome! Thank you guys so much. This was great, fun discussion. Uh, uh, really great work on this script. Thank you again, Katrin, for your your work on that. Um, and I will say it always, as always. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed. <laughs>